Picture, if you will, three different kinds of organisation. The first type of organisation we'll call chaotic. In a chaotic organisation, rules are made to be broken. If anyone follows the rules, it's by accident, or because that's the easiest way to do things anyway. The second kind of organisation we'll call bureaucratic. In a bureaucratic organisation, rules are king. If there's an argument as to the right way to do something, it will be settled by referring to the rule book. The third type of organisation we'll call generative. In a generative organisation, people follow the intent of the rules. Sometimes, this means that instead of following the rules, you need to update the rule book. Now picture three different situations. In the first situation, the rules are correct and important. Here, the bureaucratic organisation and the generative organisation will prosper and be safe. In the second situation, the rules are silly or out of date. Here, the bureaucratic organisation will stumble and the chaotic organisation will feel a momentary sense of vindication, a temporary feeling, because there's no guarantee they'll break the rules in a sensible way. In the third situation, there's no applicable rule. Here, the safety of all three organisations will depend on the ability of their people to find and execute an appropriate course of action. There are two important lessons from this little mental exercise. The first lesson is that blind obedience to rules will only take you so far. The second lesson is that bureaucracy, whilst imperfect, is still a step above chaos. Arguably, a focus on complying with rules may be a necessary intermediate step between chaos and a truly generative safety culture. However, if we want to stop people breaking rules, we first need to understand why rules get broken, and we need to accept that those reasons may include the way we have written and explained the rules. We delve into the science of non-compliance on DisasterCast, Episode 6. Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of DisasterCast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. My name is Drew Ray. This episode is being written whilst I'm on a walking holiday in the northwest of England. Those of you experiencing the English weather will understand why I'm indoors writing a podcast on my walking holiday. If you're receiving this episode anywhere near on time, then you can thank listener Hope Paulson. The nicest compliment anyone can pay a podcaster is to ask when the next episode will be out. The idea that people might actually be waiting for the episode to be released is powerful motivation. So thank you for the encouragement. We're back to just my voice this week. In the Something Old section, we'll be looking at the Clapham Junction rail accident 
as described in the brilliant report by Anthony Hidden QC. I've chosen this accident because it's a fascinating study into rule-breaking, and because it lets me say that I've made the Hidden Report publicly accessible via the show notes. In Something New, we'll look at the various reasons workers deliberately break rules, and what can be done about it. In Something Out of the Blue, we'll be talking about elevator safety. On the morning of 12th December, 1988, a crowded commuter train ran into the rear of a stationary train just outside of Clapham Junction. The commuter train bounced off the tracks and into the path of a third oncoming train. As a result, 35 people were killed and nearly 500 were injured. The hidden report states clearly that the purpose of this investigation was not to look for one simple, single solution to account for the tragedy, but to seek and establish both the immediate and the underlying causes of the accident, and all the circumstances attending it. Although he doesn't mention the technique by name, what Anthony Hidden accomplishes in his report is a masterpiece of root-cause analysis. Root-cause analysis has a somewhat deceptive name. Its purpose is not to find a single root cause of an accident. Rather, like the roots of a tree, it begins with a simple explanation and then builds a network of causal circumstances. For any statement of fact about an accident, root cause analysis prompts you to ask, how did this come to be? How was this allowed to remain? And how did this come to result in an accident? At Clapham Junction, Our causal network starts with a piece of wire. It was not a useful piece of wire. It should not have been there. It was, in fact, part of an old relay circuit that had been disconnected. This old piece of wire touched the circuit for a new signal that had been installed. This allowed electricity to flow across the circuit and caused the stationary train to become invisible to the signalling system. Since the circuit could see no train, the signal light to protect the train became green when it should have been red. In safety language, this is called a wrong side failure. Rail signals are designed to be fail-safe. If there's an error or failure in the system, it defaults to turning the signals red. The hopefully rare events which defeat a fail-safe strategy are called wrong side failures. Now, this is where it gets interesting. The accident was caused by a piece of wire. The wire was not supposed to be there. We know exactly who was supposed to make sure that the wire wasn't there. He took full responsibility afterwards, both for the wire and for the accident. But the hidden inquiry did not accept his claim of responsibility. When an old circuit is disconnected, it isn't always possible to completely remove the wire. In these cases, the maintenance rules say that three precautions should be taken. The wire should be disconnected at both ends, it should be cut back as short as possible, and it should be secured in a position where it cannot touch other wires. The maintainer did none of these things. This was a violation, a breaking of the rules. Now, 
how did the violation come about? It turns out that this was what the maintainer usually did. He routinely broke the rules, and no one had ever noticed and corrected him. He hadn't been trained to do the job properly, or undertaken any test or assessment in how to do electrical wiring. It wasn't just him, either. This was the regular way maintainers worked. They regularly broke the rules. How did the violation remain? Normal good practice would require a supervisor checking the work of the maintainer. The supervisor in this case was working with one of the track gangs. He never even entered the signal box, let alone checked the wiring work. It was one of those cases where the supervisor was working so hard that they forgot to supervise. Let's not jump to blame the supervisor, though. This maintainer had been working on electrical wiring for 16 years, and not one of his supervisors had ever noticed that his work was routinely unsafe. So how did the violation come to result in an accident? It's a scary thought that a railway could be made unsafe by a single wiring error. In actual fact, there's an independent check called a wire count to prevent this sort of signal point of failure. The wire count should typically be the job of the supervisor, but he was unaware that this was part of his responsibility. So now, root cause analysis gives us three more facts that we need to explain. We have regular poor maintenance practices, a lack of adequate supervision, and a lack of knowledge about the importance of a wire count. For each of these things we could ask, how did this come to be, how did this remain, and how did it come to result in an accident? We could do this for each of the facts, but for the sake of simplicity, let's focus on the wire count, which the Hidden Report describes in capital letters as the last defence. It may have been the supervisor's job to actually do the count, but it was the job of the testing and commissioning engineer to make sure that it got done. The test and commissioning engineer was only temporarily in that role. As a result of a reorganisation, his previous position had disappeared. He'd applied for four or five other jobs in the railway, but he hadn't got them, so when he was offered a temporary role, he felt obliged to accept it. It was a temporary job that he didn't want in a location where he didn't want to work. Because it was temporary, he had no real induction or training for the work. The document describing the wire count that was supposed to be done was called SL53. It was a formal work instruction titled Testing of New and Altered Signalling. The test and commissioning engineer had seen this document in draft form, but had never read it in its final version. It had arrived in his inbox, but no one drew it to his attention or told him that it was his job to make sure it got implemented. This didn't stop him signing the box on the test certificate, saying that all work had been completed in compliance with SL53. If you've been following so far, you can probably see what's coming next. It doesn't actually matter who this engineer was. His predecessor, who wasn't temporary, and wasn't demotivated, 
and did understand the job, would have done exactly the same thing. The engineer in charge of improving the quality of testing for the whole region would have done the same thing. None of these engineers, with test and commissioning in their job title, was aware that a formal work instruction with testing in its title had been issued and was in force. SL53 didn't appear from nowhere. It was produced in response to a series of wrong side failures called the Oxted Incidents and the Queenstown Road Incident. All of these incidents would have been avoided by a proper wire count. The tester in charge of the Queenstown Road Incident had been blamed and reprimanded, but no one had stopped to ask how a tester, without training or awareness of the work instructions, had been put into that job. As the hidden report states, the fault did not lie merely with the tester's shoddy work, it lay equally with the person who had sent him to do the job. The hidden report contains a fairly lengthy discussion of reorganisations within the Signalling and Telecommunications Department of British Rail. This discussion fails to reach a strong conclusion. Hidden recognises that the regional testing team had three tasks. To conduct testing, to improve the standard of testing, and to improve the training and competence of testers. They were so busy doing the first of these that they failed in the other two. This was the case before the reorganisations, so the worst that can be said is that the reorganisations were missed opportunities for reform. My personal speculation, reading between the lines, is that the number and size of reorganisations had created reform fatigue. Staff were reluctant to undertake long-term initiatives because they expected any improvements to be wiped out by the next reorganisation. Faced with constant change, they focused on what they saw as the core part of their job and neglected the long-term parts. For any safety engineer, there's a balancing act between the immediate needs of the tasks at hand and the long-term needs of the organisation. The goal is always to do a good job within existing constraints, but to make sure that it will be easier to do a better job next time. The Clapham Junction accident could have been avoided if the people who knew most about testing were spending less time testing and more time creating a better test organisation. With all of the chaos in the causes and circumstances of an accident, I'm always amazed by the things that go right. The first person in charge of the accident scene was temporary station officer Mills. He arrived four minutes after the crash and was in charge for a whole ten minutes. In that time... He had assessed the situation, begun to evacuate the passengers, worked out how many more ambulances and fire tenders were needed, declared a major incident so that the hospitals would be prepared, set up arrangements to direct the arriving police, ambulance and fire crews, set people to work to improve access to the crash site, and then joined in the rescue himself. Another hero in the aftermath was a controller called Mr Ronald Reeves, When his alarm panel started to flash, before anyone even told him that there was an accident, he had diagnosed that a major incident must have happened and isolated traction current from the whole area. Without his actions, 
the rescuers could have been at constant danger of electric power being restored throughout the first minutes of the evacuation. To give an indication of the sheer scale of the rescue effort required in an accident of this size, in addition to the police, fire brigade, ambulance, doctors and volunteers, there were 134 council workers involved in the rescue. Why does a rescue need council workers? Accidents don't tend to happen in convenient, easy-to-get-to places. While the first responses were struggling over fences and down a steep embankment, the council workers were creating better ways to get supplies in and stretches out. They removed fences, they cut down trees, they built steps and paths for the other emergency workers. Some council workers were diverting traffic, carrying supplies or stretchers, or providing assistance to the unwounded survivors. When they were finished with that part of the job, they lined up at the hospitals to donate blood. At 8.10 in the morning, a single out-of-place wire had killed 35 people. Hopefully this discussion has gone some way to explaining why I haven't mentioned the specific names of those who caused the accident. The Hidden Report does in fact name names and place blame. If you read the actual words of the report, you'll find that Hidden can be quite trenchant, but also understanding. He recognises that to stop an accident, it isn't enough to spot the violations, but also to find explanations. A recurring myth in safety management is that it's possible to draw a neat line between errors and violations. An error is where you break a rule by accident. A violation is where you break a rule deliberately. To understand why this distinction doesn't work, we need to realise that breaking rules is often not a personal choice. Broadly speaking, we can class violations in three categories. A routine violation is where rules get broken because there's no particular reason not to. We don't see the point to the rule. We don't see any bad consequences for breaking the rule. Pretty much every time you ignore a don't walk on the grass sign, that's a routine violation. Those are the types of rules that people follow because they fear punishment, not because they care about the rule. An optimising violation is where the rules get broken because there's some immediate reward, often in the form of a bit of a thrill. Breaking a speed limit is this sort of violation. It feels good to drive faster. A necessary violation is where the rules get broken to get the job done. Often, we keep adding safety rules in response to incidents and accidents, to the point where you can't actually obey all the rules and still meet the needs of the job. Sometimes it's actually impossible to do the job. Sometimes it's more of a cost-benefit trade-off. You could follow the rules, or you could meet deadlines and production targets. These categories sound nice, but they hide the fact that some people are more likely to break rules than others. If we put two people in the same situation, one of them might follow the rule, and the other might not. How can we explain the difference? One of the factors is expectation. People who violate rules 
tend to overestimate how often other people break the rules. They're less aware of social expectations. In a Swedish study, truck drivers were put into groups to discuss driving behaviour. The theory was that the drivers who broke the rules assumed incorrectly that everyone broke the rules. Sure enough, making violators more aware of the fact that the norm was to obey the rules caused them to improve their behaviour. Another factor is superiority. Everyone tends to overestimate their own skill, but violators tend to be worse at this. They tend more than other people to overestimate just how good they are at the job, including overestimating their own ability to avoid accidents. The third factor is an illusion of invulnerability. Compared to people who follow rules, violators tend to underestimate the chance that their bad acts will lead to an accident. The fourth factor is planning. The amount of thought that goes into a task ahead of time predicts the likelihood of following the rules in conducting the task. People who follow rules will tend to reflect a bit before doing something. People who violate will tend to leap in without planning. These factors provide clues as how to, man- how to manage violations. Campaigns that target the general workforce may actually be ineffective in addressing the psychology of those who break the rules. For example, a common safety strategy is videos that show the horrific consequences of accidents. These types of videos have a lot of impact on the type of people who follow the rules anyway. But the type of person who breaks rules will tend to overestimate their own ability to avoid the accident, and so they believe it could never happen to them. So, many safety videos work well for people who follow the rules anyway, but don't do anything about people who will break the rules. There's an alternate approach which is not to focus on the people who break the rules, but on the rules themselves. The first question we could ask ourselves is whether compliance with the rules is inherently rewarding. When bicycle helmets were made compulsory in parts of Australia, one of the biggest impediments was that all of the available helmets for school kids were uncomfortable and uncool. Lighter, better-looking helmets were a far more effective response than enforcement of the rule. Anything that we can do to make compliance easier and more attractive is helpful, ranging from encouraging pride in safety compliance to directly linking pay and incentives to safety. The second question is whether breaking the rule is inherently rewarding. If there's a positive reward, positive feedback for breaking a rule, then non-compliance can very quickly become a habit. The trick here is not to balance the scales by punishing people, but by working out what that reward is and redesigning the rule so that compliance gives more satisfaction than non-compliance. The third question is whether the rules are right to start with. Rules can be wrong because they run counter to safety, because they can't be followed, or simply because they're unnecessary. Trimming away unnecessary rules allows a focus on the rules that actually matter, and optimisation of the work around the important rules. There's one final point I need to make about breaking rules. Sometimes, People break rules because they believe they know better 
than the people who wrote the rules. That's something that we can control through competency in professional development. The flip side of that is that breaking the rules is not the right response to that situation. The correct thing to do if a rule is wrong is to get it fixed, not to break it. A key sign of an unsafe organisation is that people are so fixated on making other people follow the rules that they make it hard to change the rules. If the rules are too hard to change, then you're forcing people either to break the rules or to follow them against their own good judgement. Neither of these is safe. For something totally out of the blue this week, a bit about elevator safety, prompted by a couple of questions I received after Claire mentioned fire elevators in the last episode. Per passenger journey, elevators are typically one of the safest ways to travel. Around 40 people die each year around the world in elevator accidents, almost all while maintaining or constructing elevators, rather than riding in them. For passengers, the most common dangerous failure mode is for the elevator to start moving while the passenger is partway in or partway out. The movie free-falling elevator car scenario is incredibly rare. There's significantly greater risk of being killed by something falling onto the elevator car than from the car falling itself. If you're ever in a lift accident, stay there until you get professional assistance, even if it looks like you can get to the floor above or below. Ever since the invention of the modern lift, your chances of the elevator plunging to the bottom of the shaft are tiny, and people have quite frequently even survived a free-falling lift. Most passenger deaths are caused by people trying to exit a stuck elevator. Either they fall, or the lift starts moving again while they're trying to exit, and they get trapped by the moving lift. If you think about it, there's a lot of intrinsic and mechanical protection preventing a fall. The only thing preventing uncommanded movement is correct function of the electronics. Paradoxically, this means that there is a greater risk from an elevator going up than coming down. Conventional wisdom is that elevators should not be used in the event of a fire. During the 1980s and 1990s, this idea was challenged, but the consensus opinion was that elevators were too unreliable during a fire to be used for evacuation, and there was more risk of passengers being trapped and overcome by smoke than benefit to be gained by using the elevators. This reasoning is challenged in very tall buildings, where evacuation by stairway is simply not an option. Also, in very tall buildings, the air pressure already needs to be carefully managed in the elevator shaft, so adding smoke protection is not such a big deal. When the Twin Towers collapsed on September 11, 2001, a number of people escaped from the South Tower via the lifts, and there were almost certainly a large number of people who simply didn't have time to evacuate via the stairs. This added weight to a growing idea that specially designed fire elevators might be worthwhile. There are three advantages elevators provide in the event of a fire. Speed of evacuation, ability to evacuate less mobile people, and tactical flexibility for the firefighters. Against this, 
are the threats to safe elevator travel. Smoke, heat, and water. Of these, water is the biggest technical challenge. There's a heck of a lot of it once automatic deluge systems start operating. And it has the potential to play havoc with the elevator power, elevator electronics, and even the mechanical systems. Even if it doesn't actually damage the elevator, water can easily trip the automatic elevator safety systems, which is not what you want during an evacuation. The Burj Khalifa Tower in Dubai, the world's tallest building when it was completed in 2010, is the first super-tall building to feature lifts with a lifeboat mode. Every 25 storeys of the building contains a reinforced refuge area built to withstand a fire for two hours. The lifts contain a number of features which will let them transfer people from the refuge areas to the ground. These include special properties of the elevator shafts, as well as functions built into each elevator car. The features include an independent power supply for each lift, cameras to check that the length of the lift shaft is intact and clear, protection around the elevator cage itself, and special controls for the lifeboat journeys. Each elevator contains closed-circuit TV and better communication facilities than typical lifts. The lifts have extra motor capacity to avoid the chance of the lift stopping because it's overloaded with panicking passengers. And, unusually for lifts, they have a press-to-close button which actually closes the doors instead of just giving impatient people something to do with their hands. In operational terms, normal elevators have two phases of fire operation. In phase one mode, the elevators all return to the ground floor and open their doors. In phase two mode, the elevators can be operated directly by the firefighters, for example to rescue less mobile occupants. The Burj Khalifa elevators introduce phase three, the lifeboat mode. This involves a test run to check that the elevator is working safely and then controlled evacuation from the refuge areas. That's it for this episode of DisasterCast. Thanks to everyone who tweeted or retweeted about the last episode. A special thanks to C. Jarvis and Mr. Smith for their iTunes reviews, and to Cash and Hope for their ongoing support. DisasterCast is produced in York, with support from I'm a Scientist, Get Me Out of Here. The theme tune is a disaster anthem by Eden Prayer.